Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be together to worship together this morning. Uh, again, um, if you're visiting with us, so grateful that you're here. Uh, again, my name is David Cumby. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we've been going through a series in Ephesians. Uh, we're going to get back into that series this morning. So I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible or if you want to grab one of the Bibles near you, to open up to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we are, Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to look at 1 through 21, those verses that we just heard read a few minutes ago. And so if you want to turn there so you can follow along as we work our way through uh, these incredible words of the Apostle Paul, as we do that, just a reminder to kind of uh, locate yourself um, in, the, in the letter. Uh, we've looked at the first three chapters, which we said really is about uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. It focuses us in on this incredible, incredible good news uh, in which we find out who God is and his great love for us. And uh, if we put our faith in Jesus, it changes, transforms. It gives us a new identity. It gives us a new life, life made new, which is the title of our series. And so we've looked at that. And here in the second half of the letter, the Apostle Paul is turning to a question. Uh, in light of that, how do we then live? If this is who we are in Christ, um, how do we live out that life? As followers of Christ, as God's holy people, how do we do things like relationships? How do we understand things like sex? How do we understand marriage, work, parenting, on and on? How do we handle the day-to-day decisions of life and the battles we face, the spiritual battles we face? And as we look at these last half, this last half, these last three chapters, I think there's a danger for us. And I just want to hit on this real quick before we get into chapter five. And the danger is we can forget chapters one through three. The danger is we begin to read these lists, right, of, of things that we are not to do and things that we are to do and see them without seeing them within the context of the grace that we just sung about. We can begin to forget that we can come to a list like this and not have to worry about our eternal security or whether God loves us. This is not what's on the line. This is an invitation to live out of the truth that we already know, that we have been declared holy, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and not of ourselves. And so as we look here at chapter five, I think it's really important for us to be reminded of that, that Christianity is not a moralistic religion. It is not fundamentally a list of do's and don'ts. That is not the fullness of the gospel. Um, the unique claim of the gospel is that God actually changes our hearts, right? It changes our hearts, and as our hearts change, so our behavior begins to change. It, it goes from the inside to the outside, uh, as it were, because we begin to want what God wants and to feel what God feels and to live as if God was living through us and in us, because indeed he is. His spirit is within us. And so that's why Paul gives this thorough and beautiful and deep explanation of the gospel for these first three chapters in Ephesians, uh, because he does that, uh, notice he does that before he ever gets to a single prescription about behavior, and that's not by accident. It's because he wants us to be immersed in and rooted in and operating out of the truth of the gospel before we start talking about behavior. But now we come to behavior, uh, and as we do, uh, maybe I could sum all that up in just saying this. We have to hold to this truth that gospel belief always comes before gospel living. You can't get that flipped around. You've got to start with the belief before you get into the living. And so that's why if you look at chapters 4 and chapter 5 uh, in Ephesians, they begin with therefores. 
Therefore, Paul says, therefore, because of what Jesus has done for you and in you, in your heart, therefore, live like this. Walk like this. Your heart has been changed. Therefore, your life actually can reveal that, is what Paul's saying. Now, I do want to say that doesn't mean that we shouldn't expect to sin. We'll, we'll still sin. Uh, we still will disobey. Uh, we still will give ourselves over to sin at times in our lives. So we're not talking about perfection uh, in Christ. That is not the aim, in a sense. The aim is this life with God and living under his grace. And so what happens in us is our appetites are being reformed being transformed. Our hunger, our desire is beginning to change, and that's a process. It's a process. You could call that sanctification if you want. This process where we are being more and more and more captivated uh, by God and living more and more in the fullness of relationship with him, and that shapes who we are, and it shapes our character, and it shapes us into holy people, the holy people that he declares that we actually are in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, in other words, God's righteousness is imputed to us. It's not something we achieve. We are declared right with God. And so he gives us his goodness, he gives us his beauty, his his power, his spirit, and in response to that, we are changed and we are changing. And so we respond with our heart by learning to love God and love what is good and right. You could say uh, this life with God and faith in God, it's changing our wanters, right? That part of us, we even want to do what's good now, which is totally by the Lord. That's absolutely by grace that we would even want to do what is good. And so that's how God can say to us, like uh, Peter does, the apostle Peter does in 1 Peter, be holy as I am holy. He can say that because he's making us holy and because he is holy. Now, again, I say all that because as we get into Ephesians 5, where Paul says very clearly, this is how followers of Jesus behave, we must be careful not to hear it just as a moral to-do list. This is not just about our behavior, it's about our hearts. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to look at these 21 verses, and I want to highlight what I'm going to call the motivation of our hearts for holiness. I want to look at six heart motives in our lives for holiness. And so the first, verse one, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. This is the first heart motive. It's that we imitate our heavenly father as beloved children. We imitate, we act like him. We respond to the love our father has for us as his children, and we begin to respond as he would in any given moment in our lives. Notice that we don't imitate God to become his beloved children, okay? We don't become his beloved children because we already are. We are his beloved children, and that's hugely important. We've been given the Father's spirit, his heart, again, not something we earn, and that is so important to remember because if you try to imitate God without that truth, Without the heart of God within you, it will crush you. It will make you a a, a legalist, a hypocrite. I don't know if you guys remember, um, there was, I can't even remember the commercial for, but the the tagline was, uh, if I could be like Mike. Do y'all remember these commercials about Michael Jordan? 
I'm not getting much nod. Yeah? Okay, some of you guys remember. Anyway, there was a commercial that was for Michael Jordan, and it was like, if I, if I could be like Mike, y'all remember? Okay. So there, there was this commercial, and there was all these cute kids, like, in the commercial, right? Like, they were, they were like, if I could be like Mike. You know, like, that was kind of like the thing. And, and I thought about that as I was reading this, Imitators of God, because I, I thought of, like, man, talk about a letdown for those kids. <laughs> Just be like Mike. If I could be like Mike. How many of those kids became like Michael Jordan? None of them. There's only one Michael Jordan. You can't be like Mike. You can't actually do it. You can't be like Mike. And I thought about that because I thought in the same sense, you can't just imitate behavior and become something you aren't, right? And so you can't just be like God any more than I could just be like Michael Jordan, by trying to imitate him. And so the point is, unless you have God's heart, unless you have his heart, you can't actually become like him. You can't imitate him. And the good news is that when we have God's heart, we do what is good because it's what flows out of God's heart. God doesn't do good for any reward. He doesn't do good to avoid punishment. And neither do we as his beloved children. It flows from who he is. It's what he loves. His love for us draws us to him, and we begin to imitate him. His spirit in us is at work, and we begin to desire what he desires. We begin to think like him. We begin to love like him. We begin to live as he would live if he were living our lives. We imitate him. And so I think it, it just bears reflection when you think through your life, just the day-to-day -day realities, the decisions that you're making, as we go through our day, we want to be intentional. And I think at, at, at points in our life, this becomes intuitive. The, the closer we draw with Jesus, we, we use this language, if be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And it gets at this idea that we begin to imitate and even intuitively do the kinds of things that Jesus would do if he were us. We begin to think God's thoughts after him. What would my father think about this? as we go through our day? How would he feel about this conversation that I'm having right now? How would he feel, how would he respond to the way I'm using my finances right now? If he were me, what would he be looking at online? Right? Is this something, the thing I'm doing, is this something God would enjoy? So I think reflecting on our own lives as we seek to imitate our Father who loves us and is in us and with us. So first, our heart for holiness grows when we live as imitators of God, as beloved children. When we love what our Father loves, we become holier, more and more holy, more and more like him. Second, second heart motive. Look at verse two. And walk in love, the Apostle Paul says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Second heart motive, we love sacrificially because that's what Jesus did for us. We love sacrificially because that's what Jesus did for us. It motivates us and our hearts to holiness. We respond to the overwhelming love of God in Jesus by loving the way that he loved. Now, I don't know how you read the New Testament, for example. I don't know how you read the New Testament and don't walk away amazed at the incredible love of God in Jesus. I don't know how you come in contact with this incredible story about Jesus and not walk away. And I don't mean like the squishy, kind of selfish, sentimental 
thing that passes as love today. I mean a love that's fierce and courageous and radical and life transforming. That kind of love that just overflowed from Jesus' life. I mean, just read, I was reading Matthew chapter 9 this week. I was just overwhelmed by the pictures over and over and over of the love that just poured out of Jesus' life, just oozed from his pores everywhere he went. Just look at Matthew 9. It begins with this incredible story of Jesus forgiving a man his sins and and then healing him. He'd been paralyzed probably his whole life, and he, he stands and walks. Jesus heals him. Then he goes and he meets this traitor, tax collector, this totally corrupt man named Matthew, and he says, I know everybody else hates you, but God loves you. Follow me. And this guy gets up and follows him. Matthew becomes one of his disciples. God God is just doing these things over and over. He raises a girl from the dead. This this woman reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, and his love is so great that her faith heals her in that moment. It's just, again, oozing out of Jesus. A blind man gets to see. A man who's mute gets to speak. And then at the end, there's this beautiful scene of this great crowd gathered for what? To hear the gospel proclaimed, to hear him proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And it says at the end that as he's teaching them, he looks out on the crowds. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And nowhere is the compassion of God, the love of God, made more clear, more beautiful than on the cross. Jesus gave his life out of his love for us to rescue us. And so when you encounter love like that, like the love of Jesus, the way that you respond to it, it it changes you. The way it manifests in your life is extraordinary. You begin to love people like Jesus did. Again, we say this all the time. One of our goals is to become like Jesus, and that's at the heart of what we mean when we say that, that we would love the way that Jesus loves. We want to love like Jesus did because of the way he's loved us sacrificially. The sign that you have Christ, one of the clearest signs that you have Christ in your life is a sacrificial love for God and for others if it marks your life, because it marked Jesus' life. To pick up on Paul's metaphor here, we start to smell like Jesus. This beautiful picture of a fragrance, this fragrance that just emits from Jesus, from his sacrifice. And so our lives have this sweet fragrance and they please God and it draws people to God. And so our heart motive for holiness is the sacrificial love of God in Jesus. Third heart motive, look at verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, the holy ones of God. That's what saints means, not the special elite Christians, right? The holy ones, all of us who are in Christ. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So third heart motive, impure living doesn't fit with our holy life in Christ. Impure living, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. Paul says sexual immorality, impurity, covetedness, filthy talk, crude joking, these things, in other words, they don't line up with who we are and how we are to live in Christ. He says they're not proper. 
is the word, right? They're not proper. In other words, they're not the way of the kingdom of God. Think about it this way. They're not authentic. And we love to talk about being authentic, right? It's not authentic to who you are in Christ to live this way. Sexual immorality, specifically, he hammers on sexual immorality. It does not fit. Why? Why does it not fit with who we are in Christ? Because sex is a gift from God. It's not intended to be selfish or self-indulgent. When sex is used only to meet your need to feel wanted, accepted, or desirable, or only to fulfill your desire for pleasure, it is selfish. It is sinful. The gift of sex is about oneness. This is what the Bible teaches. Not just of body, but of heart and soul and mind. It is a physical, emotional, and spiritual act of intimacy. Sex, in other words, it's saying with your whole body, I'm one with you. That's what it's saying to another. I'm one with you and with no other. And not just in this moment, so I can get what I want, or you can get what you want, but for a life together and in every way together. That's why the only place for sex is within the covenant of marriage. Sex outside of marriage is always selfish because it says, I'm taking from you physically, but I'm not giving you everything. I'm not giving you all of me. It's saying, I want your body, but I don't want all of you. It's not backing it up with a lifelong commitment. And so it distorts sex into a lie because you are actually becoming one with them, but you're not. Not in every way. So that's why saying you love someone, right? Saying I love you or even feeling, real, I really love you is not enough. If you're having sex with them and not marrying them, it's dishonest and it's selfish and it doesn't line up with who you are in Christ. If you really love them, you would act with integrity. You would become one with them in every way, relationally, emotionally, financially, spiritually, and not just physically. God made sex. It is good. It is beautiful, but it has a place. As Paul says, it has a proper place. And that place is between a man and a woman in a whole life union of marriage. That's not what our world says. I know that. You know that. That is not what the world says, but that is what is true. It's what's true. It's what God says, and he says it because he loves us, and he gave us the good gift of sex, and it has a proper place. So that's why Paul says, instead of sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, crude joking, instead, let there be what? Thanksgiving. Who saw that coming? <laughs> Don't do that. Thanksgiving, right? What is he, why does he, because when we see sex as the good gift it is, when we live in line with God's good plan for us when it comes to sex, we have so much to be grateful for. There's so much to give thanks for. God is so good and he loves us so much and his design for us is good. And when we move from being self-indulgent and self-centered people to being God-centered, we are grateful. We give thanks. We praise him. And for Paul, this is so important. 
So important. It takes up the bulk of his argument here in chapter 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. In other words, any physical or mental sexual acts outside of marriage shouldn't even be, what does he say? Mentioned, let alone practiced. Shouldn't even be mentioned among you. He didn't give any wiggle room, right? There's no question. Where's the, Paul, where's the line? Like, what base? You know, like, none of that stuff. It's silly stuff, right? He says, don't take the fire out of the fireplace, period, right? Sex outside of marriage in any way, whether it is sex with another person or sexual fantasy or pornography, watching Game of Thrones, reading trashy romance novels. I know, I'm getting, it's going to (laughs) hurt. Dirty jokes, it's sin. It is sin. It is sin. It's not proper. And more than that, it's destructive. And we are seeing what that destruction can do in our culture and in the church. Through digital media, sexually explicit material is more accessible today than ever in the history of the world. It's everywhere. Real quick, I just want to share some research some statistics from a group called the Barna Group who does um, some really solid research, great resource. Uh, These are some of the statistics that stood out to me when it came to sex in our culture. More than 25% of young adults, that's age 25 and under, have seen explicitly sexual uh, media material before puberty, before they get to 12. They've already seen explicit sexual material. Compare that to uh, boomers, who self-report, that was probably about 6% in their generation. 6% to 25%. Only 28% of millennials think pornography is morally wrong compared to 58% of boomers. 40% of teenagers have sent a sexually um, explicit text to another person. Almost 60% of young adults use porn monthly. So some trends. When surveyed about the purpose of sex, what's sex for? Younger generations by far see sex as a means to connect with another person, self-fulfillment, and self-expression. Fewer and fewer see sex as a means to reproduce. I mean, let that sink in. We've completely disconnected sex from the act of creation. They don't see it that way. More and more people don't see it as an expression of intimacy between two people who even love each other let alone between a man and a woman in marriage. And it's not just out there, it's in here. It's in the church. Pastors, leaders, followers of Jesus, every stripe in the church have had their ministry wiped out, their lives and their families destroyed by sexual sin. Sexual immorality is shaping us and future generations. It has gained a foothold and that foothold has become a stronghold and no wonder our culture is so sexually confused and broken. Giving in to sexual temptation. I just want to say this. Even if you think it's just a little thing, a little dirty joke, right? just, just a little bit of that explicit material. I don't do it a lot. Every guy does it. All my friends are reading this novel. Whatever you tell yourself, even just a little, Paul says it's a big deal. And he says that because he knows what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. 
Jesus said to even look at someone with lust is adultery. It's adultery. It's not proper. And giving sexual sin a foothold in your life is walking into spiritual bondage. Paul later says in verse 5 here, it's idolatry. To say I can't live a happier, fulfilled life without meeting my sexual need in whatever way I choose is idolatry. And our culture is rife with it. It is to say God is not enough for me. Paul says don't go there. Sexual immorality will destroy your relationship with God, with with, with the people you love, it will destroy you. It belongs within marriage and nowhere else. It should not even be named among you. No hint of it. Do not go near it. Period. Period. I was reminded of uh, the Puritan John Owen's words, which have always stuck with me. This is what he said when you face stuff like this. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I don't think you can get any clearer about sexual immorality. If you're struggling with this, I just want to say to you, I want to encourage you, there's hope. God can break that in your life, free you from that. So pray, ask him to put it to death in your life, find a follower of Jesus you trust, confess, repent, and get the help you need, whatever it takes. Jesus said, cut it off, and we need to be willing to do that because impure living doesn't fit with your life in Christ. It is not who you are. Fourth heart motive for holiness. Verse five. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, here's the fourth motive. And I'm trying to word this carefully because I don't want to cause unnecessary uh, consternation. But refusing to give up your idols calls into question your salvation. I really think that's what Paul is saying here. Apparently, in Ephesus, there were people who thought they could worship God and keep worshiping their idols and practicing sexually immoral practices. There's something going on that he's addressing. We've talked about the Temple of Artemis and the ritualistic sexual practices that were associated with the cult, and it shaped the city, and it shaped the culture. They were saturated in sexual immorality, And I know that's hard to imagine what that must look like. (laughs) But apparently in the Ephesians church, people were saying, I want to know God. I want to follow God. But I also want to hold on to this thing over here. I want to hold on to these these sexually immoral practices. I'll come to church. I'll make some changes. I'll try to be a better person. But in this area, I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to keep it inside. I'm going to keep it a secret. It's mine. You cannot have it, Lord. And Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't soften this. For because of these things, wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul's clear. You cannot worship Jesus and go on living the way you did before. Those are empty promises. That's not true. This isn't about people having genuine struggles with sin. This is not uh, about losing your salvation. That's not what we're talking about. We all face parts of ourselves that we want to change and haven't changed, and God will change those. He can redeem them. He can heal you. He can free you. This 
is about willful disobedience, giving yourself over to something other than God, choosing to say no again and again to the lordship of Jesus in your life. That's what Paul's talking about. Again, this is not about losing your salvation. In fact, what I would say is if you're approaching the Christian life this way, if you're willfully rejecting Jesus' call to, to come out of a stronghold in your life, I think you have to ask the question, were you ever really a follower of Jesus to begin with? And I say that because if you haven't grasped what God has done for you in Christ, his love for you, if you, if you haven't fully grasped that, if you think you can find salvation in Jesus and refuse to obey him, I'm not sure what you mean when you say, I've chosen to follow him, that I love him, that I've surrendered to him, and that I trust him with my life. If Jesus isn't the Lord of your whole life, he's not the Lord of any of your life. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying there's not sin. I'm talking about the willful choice not to surrender to Jesus. You have to trust him. He loves you. He invites you to trust him. He says, take me at my word. And so when you become aware of something in your life that is not in line with his holiness, don't argue with him. Don't excuse it. Don't play games. Say, yes, Lord, help me. Help me. Deliver me from this. Repent and believe is what the gospel calls us to. Without repentance, there is no inheritance. And so following Jesus is ultimately about absolute surrender. That's the invitation, to surrender to him as Savior and Lord, and he must be both. He must be both in our lives. Fifth heart motive for holiness. Verse seven, therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Fifth heart motive. We believe God when he says don't invest in darkness because it bears no fruit. We believe him when he says don't invest in darkness, it bears no fruit. There is no future in it, in darkness. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness is what Jesus says. Many of us, I think, struggle to believe God when he says his way is fruitful and the way of darkness is not. We just struggle. I've struggled to believe that at times in my life. Maybe you can relate. There's been moments where, yeah, Jesus, I know you're saying this, but, right? You throw the but in there. But it, it seems like it's working out for me. It feels really good in the short term. I know you said it's harmful and it's not life-giving, but I'm not, I'm not really convinced. And the question for us in that moment is, do I actually believe that sin is destructive? Do I believe it's not good for me, that it is darkness? And so maybe if you're honest, that's something you're wrestling with in an area of your life right now. You're wrestling with darkness. Living by faith means even if I can't see how and I can't see now, even if I don't understand it, Lord, I trust you to define what is good and what will produce good fruit in my life. I believe your word over my word. 
And if you say something is darkness and won't produce fruit, won't help me become the person I'm created to be and really want to be, a holy woman, a holy man in Christ, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to obey you anyway, no matter what I feel. Regardless of what I feel or what I want in the moment, I choose to say yes to you, Lord. So help me bring all of my life into the light. Expose any darkness in me. Help me to see my life and this world as you do. Give me discernment. Give me wisdom, Paul says. Help me know what pleases you and help me to do it. I cannot do it apart from you. I need you. Help me not to buy into the lies of darkness. Maybe it would be uh, helpful to commit Isaiah 55, 9 to memory. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so, the Lord says, are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Do you believe that? It's true. God can do in your life things you can't even imagine. Freedom you can't even imagine. Hope you can't even imagine. Give it to him. Believe in him. Trust him. God, help us believe you to be people of light and not darkness. Sixth heart motive. It's the last one. Verse 15. Look carefully when, uh, then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is not a musical. This is an opportunity to be the people of God, worshiping God together. But sing, make melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a lot there. Uh, I just want to say one thing I think we could take from that would be that we want to see others come to life in Jesus. We want to live in such a way, in other words, that others get to see Jesus, the Jesus we know, the Christ that has formed us and shaped us and changed our life. Paul says, walk with wisdom. Make good use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. This is a world that needs Jesus. People need to see Jesus. And they can see him in you. They can see him in this community. There's a world out there that needs Jesus, and we are to live in such a way, we are to use our time in a way that demonstrates that the life that people are longing for is life with God. It's life with God. It's good. It's beautiful. It's grace-filled. It's loving. And he wants to reveal that life through us, the church. It's interesting that Paul says, don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. He puts those things next to each other. I think to help us understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, in other words, rather than be under the influence of alcohol or really anything else, right? Now I'm just mean drugs and alcohol. I mean anything in our life under the influence of anything other than God, His Holy Spirit. He says, that's not what we're after. Be under the influence of the Spirit. I I got an email from Jack Wisdom this week that had a little nugget in it. I just couldn't resist sharing. He said, uh, he, he told me this week, I'm going to paraphrase, but he said, if Jimmy Buffett had written It's 5 O'Clock Somewhere and it was about being filled with the Spirit instead of being filled with liquor, it'd be a heck of a hymn. 
It's five o'clock somewhere. When should we be filled with the Spirit? All the time. It's not a one-time thing. It's ongoing. Every moment of every day, fill me with your Spirit. The fullness of your life in me. I love what John Stott says. He says, just as excessive alcohol dehumanizes us, the fullness of the Spirit makes us more human. Human, what we were created to be by God himself because it makes us like Christ. That's what the Spirit does. Paul says the Spirit-filled life says our lives are marked by things like worship and true fellowship with one another, by gratitude for God in our lives and by loving submission to one another. When we live in the fullness of the Spirit, we stand as beautiful and compelling pictures of who God is and what he's done and his love for people. So that's the sixth heart motive. We want to see others come to life in Jesus. So there you go, six heart motives for holiness. You just read them again. We imitate our Heavenly Father. We love sacrificially because that's what Jesus did for us. Impure living doesn't fit with our holy life in Christ. Refusing to give up your idols calls into question your salvation. We believe God when he says don't invest in darkness because it offers no future. We want to see others come to life in Jesus. And what I want to do is I just want to leave those up. Um, and I know we're running long, but I just want to take just a minute. Um, and as you're looking at those, I just want you to pray through and ask God uh, maybe to stir in you which of those motives um, he's really speaking to you about. Maybe it's a word of conviction. Maybe it's a word of encouragement. Maybe it's a word of hope that you need. Deliverance. God says, be holy because I am holy. And you're a holy people. And he invites us to live with him as holy people. I encourage you just to, to pray through and think through that list. The Lord will meet you there. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks that all of life, all of our life with you is by grace. Where we started by saying, this is not about us accomplishing things and earning your love. No, Lord, you declare your love for us in Jesus on the cross and through faith in him and by grace, we have been saved. And yet, Lord, there's things in our heart or things in our heart that, that don't line up with who we are. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes to those things? Lord, and that there is no condemnation in Christ, there is freedom, there is healing there's wholeness. And so, Lord, we, we claim that promise in Jesus' name. We receive that promise in Jesus' name. And we want to walk. We want to walk in that promise that we can be holy as you are holy because of what you've done for us in Christ. We are yours in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen.